On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you doing? Well, Eric, it is about 94 degrees out in Arizona right now, and if that sounds hot to some people, it's absolutely delightful here. So we're kind of the summertime is coming to an end and the end is in sight and entering the sweet spot to live in this state right now. So it's a beautiful day outside and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I remember living there and anything under three digits was like, oh, thank you, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's perfect today. Got a it's lot great. better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that you've got a guest on the show. I don't want to hold this up with Weather Talk. Who'd you bring on the show? I'm really excited about today. I think that many of us, and I'm somewhat guilty of this myself, we are disconnected from where our food comes from. And I got a guy today that I've known for a long time as well. So it's going to make it a real fun conversation. But Ethan Lane, he is vice president of government affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And he is definitely not disconnected from where our food is coming from. He's dealing with ranchers around the entire country. So Ethan, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. I'm excited to be on. It's great to just catch up with you. Uh, this is what's going to be fun about this is this is the conversation you and I would have if we were just on the phone. So, it's absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we'd be talking about all the stuff that's happening politically and economically and everything else. And now we get to record it for, for posterity's sake. Exactly. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but we'll see how it goes. Exactly. Exactly. So where do we start? I mean, I've got a lot of topics I want to cover, but you're the guy obviously that knows exactly what the main issues are that are impacting ranchers around the country. So what is the, for your constituency, the people that you are advocating for on behalf of, to the government, what's their big concern right now? What are they scared about? Well, so, so NCBA is unique. We're the oldest and largest trade association representing the U.S. cattle and beef supply chain. We are what you think of as the Cattlemen's Association, right? So we're the trade association in Washington that, that speaks for the industry. We have state affiliates in 46 states around the country. And through those state affiliates, we represent every segment of what has been described as one of the most complex commodity markets in the world. And that's really the reality of what we deal with and what we try to advocate for in Washington every day is the nuances of that supply chain. I think in the minds of the average consumer, they have a stake in the grocery store, right, with a fluctuating price based on quality and availability and whatever else and cut. And then they have ranchers who are producing that and, and no real concept of how you connect A with B. And that's a lot of what we do is help them understand those different phases of production, help them understand the different niches within the industry, hopefully impress upon lawmakers here in Washington, decision makers here in Washington, uh, some of the needs of those different parts of the supply chain, because they're not all, they're not all the same. Right. I mean, those those ranchers that you're talking about, uh, that's the world I come from. I'm a native Arizonan, too. So I'm jealous hearing you guys talk about 94 degrees, although I know it's not going to last. We spend most of our time on, on that segment of the industry because that's our largest our largest member base. There are 750,000 cattle producers in the United States. The average herd size is about 41 head. So wow. when you really think about it, and this is always fascinating when we talk to our trading partners overseas, they have this idea of industrialized agriculture, right? I mean, the media has done us no favors in that regard. Um, pictures of smokestacks coming up behind, behind cattle pens. The reality is that we produce the highest quality beef in the world 
with the lowest environmental footprint using very small producers around the country to, to generate those cattle. Those cattle are fed out using one of the most prolific grassland environments in the world. Those are, those are resources that are natively suited for grazing animals. About 600 million acres of the American landmass is grassland and prairie that's specifically designed uh, to be grazed. So we're actually using those resources for specifically what they're for to get those animals to a specific weight. And then we're expediting that process through a highly efficient feeding system that, that really matures them quickly. It, it adds flavor. It adds that muscle mass that we're looking for. And it does that in a condensed time frame that allows us to be highly efficient in, in what we produce. So what we end up producing is the highest quality beef, literally right now, quality grade wise, the world has ever seen with the lowest environmental footprint. But we spend a lot of time trying to explain how we get there because it's a system that's very often villainized in the press. The NGO community, the environmental community um, has really mixed responses to, to what we do and how we do it. If you go overseas, our use of technology is, is often criticized. You know, the Europeans are very adverse to what technologies, whether that be, you know, low dose hormone implants or the use of antibiotics strategically or whatever the case may be. So we spend a lot of time educating on that. And, you know, over the last couple of years, since the beginning of COVID, we've spent an inordinate amount of time talking about the supply chain, just, yeah. just generally talking about those, that sort of uh, massive stress test that the entire U.S. economy has undergone, but really the food supply chain in particular since the beginning of COVID. You said something here that I've learned already. So you're saying in this country, your average herd site is 41 head. Yeah. So what you're dealing with here, again, you're, this is not industrial agriculture. This is mom and pop small businesses. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the last number I heard, 95% of farms and ranches are mom and pop operations. I mean, you know, this is something we talk about in the tax space a lot when we were pushing back on Build Back Better last year and the elimination of stepped up basis and some of those critical, you know, generational wealth tools that were under threat was getting across to lawmakers that just because a family has chosen to incorporate doesn't mean that they're no longer a family operating a family business. Right. Um, and, and helping them to understand uh, the nuances of that has been a big part of this challenge. And you'd be amazed how quickly people who don't know any better um, that are from maybe a suburban environment or an urban environment and don't understand family agriculture will say, well, you know, there's no way that's a family. They have 30 employees or they're doing this or they're doing that. That's the backbone of American agriculture is family businesses where, you know, dad's on a tractor and mom's in the office running the books and the kids are bailing hay. And yeah, they have staff too. And they have contractors and other things as they grow and hopefully thrive. Um, but this is a family business. You know, I spoke to a rancher about four or five years ago that was offered uh, a pretty mountain property, beautiful piece of land, a really good amount of money for this property that had been in the family for three, four generations. And uh, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, you get this pile of money. What would you do? And he said, I do exactly what I'm doing right now. Yep. And I said, then there's your answer. <laughs> you know? And said, well, why, why stop doing what you're doing? But I think that there's also the little bit that I've learned about your industry and the industry you represent. There's also this idea that you've got, you do have very asset rich families in some cases because they've got large pieces of land. And I forget which writer said they're not making any more of it, but the margins are not that big. I mean, no, they're not. And that's something we say a lot, cash, land rich and cash poor. That is the obvious dynamic. So in this kind of environment where right now cost of everything is going up, um, how is that impacting the ranching community? Are they somewhat immune to it because essentially the, the mountain or the, or the land's feeding them or what are some of their input costs and how's that impacting their business? 
No, they, those costs are the biggest discussion point in ranch country right now. You know, we operate on a pretty natural 10-year cattle cycle. And coming into COVID, we were unfortunately at the bottom of that cycle for the producer end of the equation. Packers were experiencing extremely high margins. Those were exacerbated because of the, the throughput constrictions during COVID. And the other side of that equation, supply and demand, is that large supply of market-ready cattle was worth far less money. We're now because they were ready to go to Packers and Packers weren't operating at capacity. Was that the issue? Correct. You just have a 40% drop in capacity almost overnight at the beginning of COVID led to more than a million head of cattle backed up in the system. Now we were different than the other proteins um, in that we didn't have to depopulate. And, and to your point, a lot of that is because, you know, worst case scenario, they can eat grass, right? right. But you do have a system that, that times uh, you know, a multi-year schedule to, you know, a specific day to, to harvest that animal and turn it into beef. So having to put that on a shelf, having to, you know, put those animals in a holding pattern, it, it comes at a cost. But more than anything, I think the most impactful part of that equation at the time was simply the fact that it was the world's greatest buyer's market for the packing sector and an incredibly poor market for those producers to sell into. So an animal that would sell at today, hundred and you know, $148 per hundred weight at the, the depths of COVID was a $93 per hundred weight animal. And, and that's a massive impact. Massive. That's, that's called your profit margin. And then some. Well, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We've seen a, a pretty substantial herd contraction since then. And that's a natural part of the cattle cycle as well, right? Those market signals come through producers start to trim their herds. They maybe sell some heifers that otherwise they would have kept. Right. In other years, they'll sell some additional bulls and things like that. They won't grow their herd. And what we see with that is the supply shrinks, price goes up. And what we should be experiencing right now for the producer side of the supply chain is uh, a pretty nice run up of prices. Right. And we are seeing that. But the input costs have skyrocketed so far, so aggressively along with that rise that it's taking all of that expected profit back out of the equation for those producers. So when they should be on the upswing, and we expect that to continue for the next two or three years, they're still basically just breaking even because of those input costs. So what are some of those input costs? What are these guys dealing with? Well, remember that even in the best circumstances, very few producers are grazing their cattle year round. So often what you see, and you're really seeing it now, right, is you're coming off grass in the summer when you have rain, you have warm temperatures. Uh, that, that grass is really thick. You can turn cattle out and you can graze them through the summer. Now you're coming into a lot of the year and where a lot of the country is going to be covered in snow. Those resources aren't going to be available. So what producers are doing is typically trying to get maybe three cuttings of hay on some of their hay fields, baling hay, putting up hay for the winter and planning to feed as much of their own grown product as possible, right, to get them through the winter months and, and back to where they can go back out on grass. Those animals that they don't sell uh, to market or to an, another phase of production. We're in a drought in, in a lot of parts of the country and in, in a lot of those areas, significant drought. And so those hay cuttings that maybe were three in a good year are one this year or none. And that means the hay market then receives a tremendous amount of pressure. And I'm talking really specifically about the beginning of the supply chain here, right? So hay that was $180 a ton a couple of years ago is $300 a ton now or $375 a ton. And so those prices for feeding those cattle, if you can't raise your own, become extremely high. And you really don't have a choice because that is your herd you've spent years building up. We don't have that high quality beef by accident. We have it because of decades of genetic of investing in better bulls, building that herd out, conforming to what the consumer is telling us they want from our product. And so the thought of 
letting that go because hay is cost prohibitive is, is, is a terrible prospect for a lot of those producers. As you move down the supply chain, you move into what they call like a stalker or a backgrounder phase of production. So that's going to be a lot of producers that are looking to buy cattle. They have grass available. They have some resources where they can turn those cattle out. Maybe they have you know, grain availability. Um, and that's going to be that next phase before they go to the feedlot. At that stalker backgrounder phase and going into the feedlot is where all of a sudden those international grain pressures, you know, we've all had an education in the last year on just how much comes out of places like Ukraine. I don't think a lot of people really understood that footprint, right? Leading in, I never thought I'd be paying attention to the percentage of harvest completion in, in Ukraine agriculture, but we sure are this year. And, and that's that really speaks to that kind of global footprint. You start to layer in drought in Brazil. You start to layer in the persistent food problems in China. You start to layer in the impacts of African swine on ASF, African swine fever, on swine inventories around the world, particularly in places like China, where all due respect to the Chinese, their public proclamation of how many animals they've had to depopulate versus what we think is probably happening in some of those areas is dramatically different. So you've got these massive pressures on this global supply chain, all of which at the end of the day, come back down to that rank and file cattle producer who just needs to get a, a hold of a consistent food source when they're not grazing for those animals that ideally they're adding consistent weight to, right? Moving towards harvest. Yeah. And this rancher, obviously you mentioned what's happening in Ukraine. I'd be curious if you knew what some of those harvest numbers are, because you're suddenly looking now, your producer's competing, not at maybe against another rancher. He's competing against a global food shortage. Well, so, so our producers in particular, not, not as much. Okay. We, our system is interesting in the U.S. We're the best market in the world to sell beef. So obviously we're going to sell our own beef to our own market, right? To, to whatever extent we want to. About 85% of what we produce in the United States is sold and consumed in the United States. We exported about $10.5 billion last year. Um, and that's a record number for us. A lot of that increases places like China, the phase one China deal um, took us from zero to hundred very quickly on our exports to China. Similarly, we're about a $2 million exporter to Japan, to South Korea, Taiwan, really robust markets for us. And, the, and the, the most important part of that equation is we're exporting them products by and large that American consumers aren't eating. So we're selling a lot of tongues overseas. We're selling offal. We're selling products that aren't palatable to a lot of Americans. So it truly is new business on the, on the, that carcass that 20 years ago wasn't really a, a, a reality for us. But we're also subject to some of those pressures as we do that as well. So as the Brazilians sell most of their beef into the Chinese market, we're taking a little bit of that market share, but it's such a big market that it doesn't really, it, you know, it doesn't really matter, right? There's room for everybody. But what we've seen is, as we've become a player there, as we've seen some of their grain constraints, it just puts those pressures on everybody as far as where food's going to go and how do you produce enough of it to meet demand. And it does have, a, it does have an effect back on the producer as far as availability of inputs to keep that supply chain going here in the U.S. We want to grow as much as we can, produce as much as we can, and push as much as we can out the door to those foreign markets because what we've found is anywhere we go and compete, we very quickly dominate the market. Foreign countries love the taste of American beef. They like the sweeter flavor that we impart through that feeding regiment, through that feedlot system. That, that, that corn ration, that, that grain mix um, is a very different taste than what they're used to in, in domestically produced product. That's why we're seeing the Australians build out their feeding sector. Um, that really wasn't something they were doing in the near past, but now that's a, a growing segment of, their, of their, their production system in Australia is feedlots. Um, it. So it's really a model that, 
um, while it's villainized in a lot of the world is also is the model that people really aspire to if they're really if they're really looking at what works. Now you've mentioned um, drought, obviously in, in Arizona, we've been kind of an aberration here in the Southwest. I think that up around Flag and some of the high country here is about 150, 200 percent of normal. We had a really good monsoon, but that's not the case in the rest of the West. How has what what is the and what I'm really always interested to talk to ranchers that have been on their property for decades and generations because they do see longer cycle changes. They their grandfather can tell them how high the snowbanks used to go, et cetera. What's the feeling among your constituency about what is happening in the climate? Is this drought? Is it cyclical? Is it the start of something bigger? Is climate change threatening this business in the United States? So if as as a lobbyist for the ranching industry, if I had stood in front of a group of ranchers 10 years ago and said the words climate change, I would be run out of the room. Uh, we've moved light years from there. That's a that's a conversation that's pretty freely had, I think, in the modern cattle industry. That being said, I think it really does depend on who you're talking to and where. I think a lot of producers that are in drought conditions right now will tell you uh, without hesitation, this is about as bad as they've ever seen it in those areas where it's bad. And it's bad in areas where it isn't typically bad this year. You know, we're seeing drought in areas of the country where it's not typically something we spend a lot of time worrying about. And to your point, you're right. I mean, I was in Arizona for a meeting uh, a few weeks back and was blown away driving from Phoenix to Flagstaff. You know, there's almost a line you cross where you go from some of the barest ground I've seen in ranch country in a long time to really lush, pretty, pretty nice feed on the ground. I talked to one of my friends that's a rancher between Flagstaff and, and Williams. And he said, yeah, the line goes right down the middle of my ranch and half my ranch is great. And the other half is an absolute wasteland. And that's really, I think, frustrating for our producers. And, and they are talking about it. I don't think the conversation sounds the same in ranch country as it does, you know, when we talk about climate change here in Washington, D.C., right? Or even in Phoenix, for that matter, or, or a, more, a more kind of in-town conversation about that. Ranchers tend to be a little more used to conditions never being great. Right. They're surprised okay. <laughs> if they have good conditions, they expect yeah. it to suck for some reason. Right. I mean, either you're going to get snow when you don't want it or you're going to get rain. If you do get rain, you get too much rain. If you don't get enough, it's really dry. The porridge is never just quite right. And that's a little bit of just, I think, a factor of being in that business and surviving on the land is rolling with those conditions. Um, you know, it's I, I think with a lot of ranchers, particularly Western ranchers, it's a little bit of gallows humor. It's just kind of part of what they signed up for. And, but I mean, there's no way around it. This, this year, this drought, because it, it's lasted more than just year is, uh, uh, is particularly bad. Now, one of the things that concerns me is, you know, we, we can all agree. We want to have a good climate. We want to breathe clean air and have good water. One of the concerns that I have lately with some of the climate change debate that's been going on is we're only talking about one side of the equation. We're only talking about the potential damage of some of these fossil fuels or whatever's happening over here. You're ignoring the benefits and you're ignoring the secondary effects of making a decision based on one input. I mean, looking back at COVID, I think a, pro a mistake that we made is we had public health people in charge because they were only looking at it through the lens of let's end all COVID. They didn't look at secondary effects, military readiness, supply chain, education of our kids, 20 other things that are happening behind the scenes. How is this really strong push, I think, in almost every industry in the last couple of years, particularly under this administration, how is this directly impacting ranchers and getting the, getting this meat on our tables as Americans? So we've seen a real evolution in how we're treated in this conversation. In the Obama administration, grazing was bad. Grazing was a threat. Grazing was, was the enemy. 
in the Trump administration, I, President Trump couldn't get enough cowboy hats behind him on stage, right? That's just who he was. The Biden administration is interesting because they have brought in some climate people who really came in day one with a goal of engaging agriculture rather than alienating agriculture. And that doesn't mean we always agree with their approach, but the idea that I'm talking to a Democratic White House who's telling me we need grazing to achieve our climate goals okay. is dramatic, dramatic improvement from where we've been, right? And we've been saying that, I've been saying that for years, right? You can't accomplish your conservation goals in this country without grazing. You can't do it and you shouldn't want to, right? Because we're offering ecosystem service benefits, carbon sequestration benefits on the ground that, that quite literally can't be replicated otherwise. And our understanding of how to do that how to improve soil health, how to sequester more carbon in the soil, how to raise these animals more efficiently is only getting better as we actually put some research dollars behind it. The USDA, Biden USDA announced uh, just recently about a $2.8 billion investment in what they're calling climate smart agriculture. Uh, a lot of those grants are going to be focused on low carbon beef, on, on figuring out how to make even more ground up. As an industry, we've come out and set a climate neutrality goal of 2040. And right now we're on track to be there by 2038. So we as an industry have come light years in our own understanding of our place in that conversation. We've learned to kind of throw our shoulders back and be proud of what we do and how we do it. We've helped our producers to no longer recoil from, from that discussion, but instead lean into here's what I do that you can't. And that's, I think, really paid dividends for the industry as far as our place in that discussion, not just here in Washington, but around the country. Well, I'm glad to hear that that's the input because I read something, I think, yesterday where you have some farmers that are protesting now in Italy because the Italian government wants to put down, I think, 1,400 head of cattle. And to me, I never understood, and this is maybe a secondary conversation, but I never understood this idea that cattle, particularly in the Western United States, was somehow damaging because prior to us arriving in the Western U.S., you had, what, 30 million buffalo running around <laughs> across the Western United States. So what, what, how, are, how are the cows suddenly incredibly damaging, but the buffalo weren't? Right. So what, can, you talk, can you touch on a little bit some of the environmental benefits of having herds of cattle in our BLM lands, in our national forests? What's the upside to that? Absolutely. I think people misunderstand what those ranchers are doing and how heavily regulated they are, especially on our public lands. Um, you don't just get to turn cattle out and go check on them at the end of the season and pull them back in. You have highly controlled, highly regulated access to the forage. Um, and a lot of that is based on drought conditions, right? Forage availability is an up to the minute kind of assessment. So those ranchers that operate with public lands grazing permits, and that's, I spent five years of my career here running the trade association that focuses specifically on that. Um, they work hand in glove with those BLM and Forest Service uh, range conservationists to, to figure out what's appropriate on those resources. More and more, what we're learning is what an impact those grazing animals, not just cattle, but I'll throw a plug in for sheep too, can do as far as wildfire reduction, fine fuel control. We have a massive invasive weed problem in the West. Cheatgrass, which is what you see when, those, when you see those kind of long stretches of, of light colored grass with a red yeah. tip to it, mm -hmm. that is not supposed to be there. That's okay. crowding out native ecosystems. And when you have wildfire and you don't manage those post-fire areas properly, you get more cheatgrass and you get what we eventually call a cheatgrass monoculture. Um, cattle can eat it at specific times of the year. And actually it's, it has a decent nutritional value, but it's not what we aspire to when we talk about native rangelands. The only way you can beat that back is to graze the hell out of it and beat back that invasive weed and allow those native grasses to take hold again. Those are benefits that you can't pour enough chemical on. 
to, to achieve, you can't achieve them through any other means. So we're just now scratching this as far as the public's understanding, as far as the land management community's understanding of what grazing can do. Our ranchers have known it for generations, right? And they right. kind of nod and say, I've been telling you this forever. But now we're starting to finally get some recognition of that. We're starting to get some science behind it. And that's really been beneficial as far as the public perception. That doesn't solve all the problems on public land because it is a, a multi-use and we're big supporters of that. But helping the public to understand that what they see when they go to a watering hole on a ranch, right, isn't necessarily the indicative of the entire ranch. You have a thousand head of cattle grazing over a hundred thousand acres. You know, you're going to have some high pressure spots and we manage for those. You're also going to have vast expanses of very low impact, low pressure environment that's benefiting greatly from that. So we have a public relations hurdle. We always are trying to get over helping your average public land visitor to understand that what they're seeing is active management, responsible management, and something that in, at the end of the day is better for their experience when they visit those resources. In terms of our ranching community, how dependent are they on public lands versus their private lands or lands they have deed or title to? It really depends on where you go in the West. 14 Western states that have a public land, a federal public land grazing footprint. And depending on the state, let's say Montana's 25% federally owned, you get down into Arizona and that number is exponentially higher, right? I mean, 16% of Arizona is privately owned. So when, you know, a lot of that state land too, but there's a pretty wide spread there between those different states. You get into states like Nevada, you simply cannot operate a cattle operation in Nevada without some access to public grazing. And that really is, I mean, the federal grazing system wasn't some genius design. It's a byproduct of homestead, right? So you have you have folks that went out and you know, pioneered those lands and, and found the places where there were springs and maybe some natural benefit, set up their, their 600 acres or their 1,200 acres there. And then what you have around it is the stuff that was left over that no one wanted to claim. And so it's always been part of the value proposition is that we're upcycling property that's not really usable for anything else in a lot of those environments. Now, that was before we, we had terms like recreation. That was before we had four-wheelers and people who like to go out and camp for fun. And I mean, that's changed that, that relationship with those lands um, completely in the last 40 years. But that was really the way that system came about was simply using those resources that no one else wanted to claim. Now, I know there's a big push too in some of our environmental groups is you want to reintroduce all of these species that once existed on these lands before before you know your Westerners arrived. Is that as big of an impact as people think uh, wolves and grizzlies and things like that? How much of an impact does that really have on the ranchers on the ground? It's a real problem. It's a real problem. And I'll tell you the challenge we have, and this is an issue that's near and dear to my heart. I've been working on delisting the gray wolf and returning it to state management nationwide the entire time I've been in Washington. We're involved in the federal court cases dealing with the delisting during the Trump administration now. So I'm definitely not an impartial observer in this discussion, but I will tell you, I think that the, for ranchers, we really are the most impacted group in those environments. Um, and that doesn't mean we can't coexist with these apex predators. We absolutely can, but what we need to be able to do that is lethal management when it's necessary. We need that engaged management. When you get a pack that becomes aggressive, when you get a pack that has decided to start a, a cycle of predation on a ranch, there's very little you can do to stop it. And we've seen that successfully implemented in, in places where the wolves are delisted. Montana 
um, is delisted. And this is really a byproduct of a, of a split management structure on the wolf. This was an idea at the US Fish and Wildlife Service some time ago, rather than deal with the entire population of the country, let's bifurcate it into different segments. And then we can delist or list them based on a specific needs. Well, the wolves migrate where they want to migrate. So you, it's, it's really kind of an odd structure, but what we end up with is states like Montana have a wolf season, they're state managed. And what we've seen in those areas is surging wolf populations, but with management where the state can come in and say, this is the number you can take this year to keep a thriving population. And we're doing that with any other species. What kind of losses? You, you mentioned Montana a couple of times. I'm a rancher in Montana in, in a heavy wolf area. Let's say we're in an area where, there, where there's quite a bit of these. What kind of losses am I looking at? What impact does it make on me financially? You know, it, it depends. You figure, you know, you're talking about a couple thousand dollar animal that you're hoping to sell at some point. If you have a, if you're a 250 head producer and you lose 16 calves over the course of a season, that's not good, right? right? And I can make the argument that, you know, if you're in Indiana and you have a black vulture problem, which is not a protected species under the Endangered Species Act, but it's a protected species under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, you're having just as big a problem. And there's no outcry of, oh my gosh, we have to save the black vulture, um, you know, in, in Indiana. A lot of this is charismatic species carry with it a little bit of extra, extra affinity from the conservation community. But where it's a problem, it's a serious problem. And it's different for, again, those sheep producers. There are more species that can be threatening to them. So they have pressure from coyotes. They have pressure from wolves. Where they have a bear issue, bears can be a, a pretty significant threat as well. Mountain lions are not protected, although given the model we've seen with other species, you can certainly imagine a scenario where that becomes an issue down the road. And that's part of the reason we have such a problem with the Endangered Species Act. It's 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 proven to be a really well-intentioned tool, but with some flaws. It's almost impossible to delist a species, even if they're fully recovered, because of the court challenges that ensue. So even though we have 50,000 wolves in Canada, we have a robust population of north of 5,000 here in the United States and growing. Um, as soon as the administration moves to delist, which by the way, the Obama administration tried to delist, Trump administration tried to delist, and the Biden administration continues to make the argument that they should be delisted. So this is a bipartisan effort. Um, so who's fighting that? Who's fighting delisting these species? The conservation community, you have a you have a pretty strong pushback from uh, defenders of wildlife, groups like that, that, I mean, that's their business model, and they are business, to, to essentially oppose any delisting. I, I've And I've been on radio shows with Jamie Rappaport-Clark, who is the head of the Defenders of Wildlife, former uh, head of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I've made this point with her in the room. I don't know that they've ever not opposed a delisting of a species, regardless of the science behind it. We, I, I think, just seek some adherence to science as the guidepost, right? Sage grouse is a huge issue in the West. We recognize that habitat is the driver of sage grouse loss. We want to work through that and create habitats that work for producing cattle and also work for sage grouse. This is not a zero sum game, but when you take all of the management tools out of the equation and say, Colorado is a great example, right? Ballot proposition secured by standing outside grocery stores in urban areas where no one will ever have to deal with a wolf. Sign this ballot proposition to restore the noble wolf to the environment. Well, you're signing that on behalf of a family operating a ranch in the mountains that's going to have to actually deal with those wolves at the tree line. I mean, my family in Arizona with Mexican gray wolves, which are a subspecies, I can tell you that you you there's very little you can do when you have 
apex predators that are actively stalking your operation. You see them, you can, you can feel them. They're quite literally looking back at you from the tree line. And that's a very, that's a very ever-present threat. It's very much right in front of a lot of these producers. And away from the federal government, is it varying state to state? I mean, is it easier to be a rancher in Montana than, say, California? Everything's easier in Montana than California. Okay. But Montana kind of can, can have its problems on its own. But generally, no matter what, we find that state management tends to be a bit more targeted to the conditions in that state. And, and even in a state like California, as many problems as we, we all know they have, by and large, state management just tends to be better management at the local level. Got it. Got it. Another question for you, kind of changing gears a little bit. So my understanding is with the ranching community, it's getting older. Most of the ranching community, we're aging out here. Is there a group of young ranchers that are coming in to take the place of these guys that have occupied this section of cattle country for all these decades now? So I, I think that there is, and this is a real challenge in our industry. And we talk about it constantly because you're right. Right. I mean, it's an aging, it's an aging industry. There's endless amounts of stories of producers, you know, selling their operations because none of their kids wanted to come home to the ranch. We hear that quite a bit. We also see a lot of young producers that are innovating and looking for new ways to reach consumers. One of the biggest success stories of COVID was direct to consumer marketing of beef, right? Go on Instagram and look at the amount of producers our age, right? In their thirties or forties that have taken over the family business and transformed it and branded it. And they're out on the internet, they're advocating for how sustainable their operations are. They're producing really high quality social media content with what their steaks look like and cooking them and marketing them and, and drop shipping them. Um, that's a growing area. And we also have producers that are right in line with the way their, their parents, you know, looking for those opportunities to, to participate in a very conventional way. And where we're focused right now is creating opportunities for those producers to choose their own path. I think a lot of the frustration we've heard is, you either can conform to this very high capacity, very efficient system that we have into place, or there's no place for you. Well, consumers are telling us nothing could be further from the truth. When you go to the grocery store, they're speaking with their wallets. They want something produced locally, a lot of them. They still, by and large, more than anything else, respond to quality. I mean, they're looking at they're looking at quality, they're looking at price. But more and more, what we're seeing is there's a real market there for something that was raised 100 miles from where you are buying it. Um, something that keys in on those attributes. And we're seeing that younger generation maybe a little more willing to, to take a risk on going down those paths and pursuing those niche marketing opportunities. It's on us as an industry to make sure we're creating true avenues for them to do that at scale and make money doing it. Because otherwise, you are going to see that footprint continue to shrink. How fast is that direct-to-consumer model growing? Do you guys have data on that? We do. And I should probably have had that in front of me before we had this conversation. But if it is it's growing. And even producers that maybe are still following that conventional model, we're seeing them open up a second a second supply chain, right? They may be peeling off 100 head a year and marketing them direct to consumer while they're also still selling cabs and doing some other stuff. So they're diversifying a little bit to capture a few different revenue streams. And that's cool. I mean, that's fun to see too. This might be a dumb question, but do they have any issues crossing state lines versus in-state? It depends on where they're processing them. Okay. So it, that's been a real discussion during COVID when we saw that massive shock to, to, to processing capacity. The first place a lot of people went was state-inspected processing facilities. There was a shortage of USDA-inspected processing facilities, that being sort of the, the standard by which you can sell it across state lines, you can sell it overseas, you know, that kind of opens all doors. State inspection programs exist in 28 states around the country. 
those programs are by and large every bit as as efficient and complete as the federal system. In no way, you know, should someone say, well, this is state inspected product, so it's inferior or perhaps not as safe as a federally inspected product. And many times those state prog programs are exceeding the standards of the federal inspection program, but they don't talk to each other. So if you have a traceback issue, if God forbid you have an adulterated product that let's say a family is driving through Montana on their way to Wyoming and they stop at a small store and they buy some beef, they put it in their cooler, they drive into Wyoming, they go to a campground, they grill it on the grill and they get sick. There's no traceback authority for the authorities in Wyoming to a Montana inspected product. And so we're always looking at that beef safety footprint. And the, the point we try to make is this is one of those areas where if there's an adulterated product issue, it's not Bob's meats problem, right? It's the entire beef industry's problem. We want to make sure we're really paying attention to that. There are some programs in place to smooth that out a little bit. There's a program called Cooperative Interstate Shipment through USDA that allows those state inspection programs to sort of dovetail into the federal system in a way that allows for some of that mobility. We're also working on some bills in Congress that would allow the sale of that state inspected product over state lines through e-commerce portals. So you create that, that chain. Um, so there's a lot of thinking going into how we address that issue right now. Got it. <clears throat> now, let me ask you this. If you were, we're going to kind of close on this point, you have a national audience for a couple minutes during the Super Bowl or something like that. And you got to convey to the United States, the U.S. consumer, whether they're meat eaters or not, environmentalists or not, the three major things that that your industry wants to get across or that Americans, we should know about the cattle and the beef industry. What would that what would those three points be? I think that first and foremost, helping the American consumer to understand that despite the media pressure that they've heard over the last however many years, there is not a more sustainable choice they can make in the marketplace for a protein than beef. You hear guilt, right? Oh, I, I know I shouldn't eat this much beef, but I just love it. No, you don't have to be, you don't have to feel guilty about eating it. You're making a choice that, that and I, we love our friends and other proteins, no other protein gets to offer, right? This environmental benefit at a massive scale, e ecosystem service benefits at a massive scale. And by the way, you, you enjoy eating it. What a, what a great opportunity. So more than anything else, more than any other message, getting that message across, you don't have to make a trade-off there. What we're producing in the United States is the lowest footprint, greenhouse gas emissions footprint beef in the entire world. The greenhouse gas emissions footprint globally for livestock production is 14.5%. The U.S. supply chain, total beef supply chain footprint for greenhouse gas emissions is 1.9%. Well, What we do and how we do it is unparalleled in the world. So if there's one message U.S. consumers should understand is you do not have to make a trade-off there. You can enjoy that steak. You can do so knowing you are making the most environmentally sensitive choice and you're buying the highest quality beef produced anywhere in the world. Well, again, what is that pushback though? Then well, why are you here? Environmental causes come on the beef industry so hard because you, you guys are in the crosshairs often. Oh, absolutely. It's become sort of bedrock in some parts of the environmental community that, that it's this idea that the food system is bad. Generally, it's we end up being sort of the poster child and nothing irks me more than when a story is written that's talking about some other part of the protein industry, and they'll still use a picture of cattle on the, which blows me away. I'm like, oh, here we go. And then you read the story and like, they didn't even mention beef in this story, right? It's about chicken or whatever else, but the picture is of cattle grazing. And, and so we have this sort of villain 
aspect. I'll say, and this maybe probably sounds like I'm putting on my tinfoil hat just a little bit, but it's reality. The vegan community, the anti-animal agriculture community has a massive influence on that conversation. Um, they can't sell vegan, right? It just doesn't sell very well. Um, numbers are pretty consistent over 30 years, two to 3% of the population is vegan or vegetarian at any one time. And it's pretty stable. It's a revolving door. So you see those communities, you know, the PETAs of the world, the Humane Society of the United States of the world, looking for new ways to scare those audiences. Climate and sustainability is one that they've really latched onto. So when you have animal welfare groups spending tons of money on climate, the question you have to ask yourself is why? Because that's not their core business, right? That's not their core advocacy area, but they're looking for any way they can to discredit the, the, the industry that they're charged with shutting down. Well, Ethan, I can't thank you enough for taking this time because I know you are extremely busy as you speak. You're speaking from Washington, D.C., and I know you've probably got several important conversations uh, between now and, and the end of the day. So really, thank you so much for taking some time. I will say that tonight, I actually, and it's not just because you came on and did this with me today, we are having filet tonight. <laughs> so so I will be enjoying you. the products that, that your people have, have put on our table tonight for sure. I, I love it. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to leave and go to the Capitol Grill and have a steak. So I, I, I love to hear it. Awesome. Thank you very much. So Eric, I know you are, you are kind of in the middle of sort of cattle country in Nebraska. Did, oh, yeah. did this conversation resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. First of all, I'm joining you gentlemen, because I have two 16 ounce ribeyes ready to go. They're going on the grill as, as I wrap up this podcast today. But one of the things that you said was just fantastic because we actually buy local uh, from a small family that decided to do their own thing. And they actually use a tagline from our yard to yours, which I thought at first I was like, I don't know about that. Cause I see my yard and it's terrible. You get, you get the point. It's their family's house, right? Yeah. A little bit of acreage. And I just bought half a cow probably four months ago. And so the ribeyes are coming from that half a cow that I purchased. And it was fun because she showed up in a beat up minivan. That's their delivery van. And it was, you know, three and a half large boxes of beef that went right into my freezer. And it was fantastic. It was good. It felt good to me to support a small family farm um, that has less than, I think you said average is 41. They have, I think about half that, um, but that's what they do. And it's not their only thing, but they love it. Right. And so that was so much fun to be able to do with them. And, and I say for them, but really for me, because we got a heck of a deal. Yeah, and one thing to your point in terms of them loving it, the, the one thing I've learned in, in the experience I've had around some of these ranchers, nobody loves the land more than they do. Yeah. And no one loves these animals more than they do. I mean, the, it's truly farmers and ranchers, man. I mean, this is this is fun, fundamental foundational businesses here. And uh, all the ones everyone I've met in either of those industries has been they've been really special people in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and I don't know, and I don't want to derail this any more than I could already have done, but it seems to me that ranchers are a different breed when it comes to farming and ranching, because a lot of the farms sell out to much larger companies that are, that are massively, you know, farming on these lands where, like you said, I can't remember what the statistic is, but most of them are smaller families still. It's not this huge machine coming in and, and doing all the cattle. Right? Um, right. I think that's a huge difference that people just don't understand. Yeah, it's um, it's it's an incredible business, and uh, I for one, I'm for sure grateful these guys are out there growing Absolutely. these fantastic animals. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for the podcast today. Uh, I think it was fantastic, great information, and of course, our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this will actually help others find the show. 
Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.